1: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest Will You Be There For Me edition. It's Wednesday, August twenty eighth, two 2019. On today's show, Blinded by the Light is a coming-of-age film that uh, features the songs, heavily features the songs, I should say, of Bruce Springsteen. It's the latest from writer-director Gurinder Chadha, best known, I think, for Benedict like Beckham, and then Lodge 49, what a deliciously weird, shambling TV series from AMC. That's the network that brought us Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Of course, how does this one stack up? And then TV show Friends, uh, this just makes me feel old as dirt. The TV show Friends turns 25. And joining me today, of course, is the uh, deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. And of course, uh, Isaac Butler, who's uh, a, a Renaissance man. I don't even know where to begin describing your many attainments. But let me let me isolate the one that I'm most excited about, which is currently working on a book uh, about the history of method acting and Stanislavski called The Method. Uh, Very psyched to read it. We're joined by Isaac Butler. Hey, Isaac. Hello. The memoir, Greetings from Barry Park, that's B U R Way, Park, Race, Religion, and Rock and Roll, was by Sarfraz Manzoor. And it told the story of growing up in Luton, the depressed London suburb in the 1980s, as a Pakistani, a second generation uh, Pakistani immigrant in Thatcher's England. Twist was he was as alienated from his peers as from his pious Hard Scrabble family and found some improbable salvation in the pious Hard Scrabble working class hymns of Bruce Springsteen. The book has now been turned into a film by Garinda Chata, the writer director. Best known for Bend It Like Beckham, I would say. It stars Vivek Kaira as a young, doe-eyed Javed, our protagonist, who is sent on a journey of self-discovery by Bruce. Let's listen to a clip. Bruce! I listened to everything. Both tapes. I'm telling you, I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt. Everything I've ever wanted. I mean... Sometimes I feel so weak, I just want to explode. Explode and tear this whole town apart. Take a knife and cut this pain from my heart. I didn't know music could be like that. I mean, is a dream a lie if it don't come true? Or is it something worse? Congratulations. You popped your Bruce Cherry. You never forget your first time. Julia, I think I have to turn to you first. My sense was that you, in the past, we've discussed Bruce Springsteen. You are woefully unfamiliar with his music. I wonder what, uh, I wonder whether you've gotten, whether you yourself went on your own kind of journey to self-discovery by watching this film.
2: Uh, I would not. That's not how I would describe my experience of watching this film. I liked this film. I don't know that it made me like the music of Bruce Springsteen more or less. It was like prolonged exposure therapy or something like I was like all right I'll just it it." It was like being in one of those floating isolation tanks like I haven't spent that much time with Bruce Springsteen's music now I got to like marinate in it repeatedly for two hours sometimes while the words of it were flashing on screen and while a kind of heartwarming and well-told story of immigration and, and culture clash unfolded on the screen before me and I'm left feeling happy that Bruce Springsteen exists and that some people love his work so much. Um what did you make of the movie? What I made the movie? I mean, I think I just said what I made of the movie. I thought it was good, sweet, told a familiar story with fresh insights and deftness and an admirable sincerity. I want to know what you thought of the movie. You're the one who's the Bruce obsessive. Who cares what I think of this movie? <laughs> I will say one thing first though about my screening of it. So I went to see it at like a 10 10 p.m. showing in a vacation town. The theater was absolutely dead empty when I got in there at 9.55. Just totally, totally empty. Eventually, like three or four 20-somethings came in and sat in the back. And then a couple, seemingly middle-aged couple, uh, as I say that, I'm realizing I was in a middle-aged couple. These people were slightly older than the version of middle-aged that I currently am, but also middle-aged, sat directly across the aisle from us, like as close to us as you could possibly sit without being in the same row. And then... The man of the couple just sang along to every single Bruce Springsteen song in the whole movie for the whole showing. And I just kind of imagined to myself that it was you and it made me like the movie even more.
0: (laughs) There was a guy at the screening I saw with his uh, teenaged children. And there was just this like he's clearly fist bumping and mouthing along with the words vibe to him through the whole film. So I think every screening has one that guy at it.
2: It's so funny you should say that because I assumed that the woman in the middle-aged couple was his wife until the very end of the movie when his obviously teen daughter walked out next to him. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, imagine singing along to every single song as your teen daughter. I was amazed at her composure and and ability to walk in a reasonable distance of her dad on the way out to the parking lot. okay well there
1: there is that one guy in uh every screening of this movie and that one guy is me i'm actually going from theater to theater Uh, you know it's like putting on a beard with
0: spirit gum to like uh glue in a beard onto your face so you can't be recognized (laughs) at one screening and then another you go in a wig
1: okay as this show's token bruce springsteen fan i'm gonna have a lot to say about this movie but first isaac i gotta know what would you make of this just as as a film
0: uh so it's an incredibly genuine and sincere movie, and it's a full-throated endorsement of the power of art to reach across barriers and help us feel more alive and less lonely and help us find ourselves. And so the fact that I disliked it feels a bit like kicking a puppy, but I like—I really just thought on a basic, particularly writing level, the movie has some some serious just kind of like artistry problems the i just thought the screenplay lays everything on so incredibly thick Mm -hmm. and that on a directing level it does not ever commit to a vocabulary or set of rules about how it's going to integrate the music into the film in a way that i i I just sort of ultimately felt like it it was like a a draft of a movie that would have been much better like it felt like a undercooked Version of a really good movie, if that yeah. makes any sense. Like, there's all the materials are there for a good movie, and I I really love Bendit like Beckham, you know, one of the director's earlier films. I just didn't think it quite came together.
1: Yeah, I mean, this segment feels like a referendum on my character, so let me redeem myself a little bit by saying upfront: movies shouldn't be puppies. Like, you should be allowed to kick responsibly, kick a movie. <laughs> um, and the fact that when a movie does feel like a puppy, and you don't want to kick it, the movie has failed. So Isaac. I'm with you on that one. This movie's not a success. Let me back into my opinion a little bit by saying that I st- like Bruce Springsteen was a revelatory, you know, intercession in my early ad- adolescent life in roughly 1977 and 1978 when some of the music that's featured in this movie was first made. And I want to get to that too. That this takes place ten years after the sort of initial heyday of Springsteen, which the movie does make at least some nod towards. But, you know, I've sort of grown up with Springsteen. He stayed with me to the extent that I am just a kind of tiresome, middle-aged, white, cis, hetero, boomer. I still kind of like him. But over time, it's occurred to me, you know, it's really come home to me that Springsteen is great in spite of himself. That The tendency to bombast sentimentality, you know, very broadly telegraphed musical signals and all of it designed to be honest to to achieve a kind of rock star like an ordinary man turning into a rock star before your eyes a superhero rock star before your very eyes is the is not even the subtext sort of the text of most of his songs in a way and i feel like this movie indulges in the very worst caricature of both him and his fans right because it essentially says this music is a kind of religion and through this person's you know apotheosis from ordinary Ashbury Park nebbish into a uh, triumphal global product like is inflating to the egos of his fans in a way that makes them seem like kind of horribly nebbishy losers. I mean, I just thought, I, I thought that it just it just played into what would incline one to dislike Springsteen's music if you weren't part of the kind of core demographic that might enjoy it. What oh. rescues the movie in that regard, no.
2: I just think you're, I think you're displaying like self-loathing Springsteen fandom here or something, but finish the thought and then I will chime in.
1: Well, no, I mean, what rescues that is that, of course, there's this demographic leap, which says, well, well, it's not even so much that the music is universal. It's that these other social circumstances of being stranded and reviled for being the Muslim other in a, you know, in Thatcher's England would make you open to this music as a salvific force. I thought that that part of the movie I went with. I mean, I thought that that was the most interesting. But Isaac, you're absolutely right. It's very underwritten. It comes across as like, let's just get on paper the broadest first draft of a movie like this, and then we'll refine it, subtilize it, and move it in the direction of real life and real people. And they and it's like that latter step they never took. And I was inclined to like it because it reminded me in, in kind of feel and almost sloppiness of watching Gregory's Girl or, or or an indie movie made in the late 70s. But it's not. It's a movie brought out by Warner Brothers in 2019. It just didn't deserve that kind of endearing great inflation. So the movie just to me was just kind of flopped in front of me. I was very sad. I love Bruce, but not this film.
2: Huh. I'm so interested. I I guess I was just like loving the puppy and maybe that's a, a woeful act of condescension. But let me mount two half defenses in favor of a movie that I only liked but didn't truly love, and which maybe suggests you guys are right. But to the bruce of it, I actually thought the movie, it's a little too long, especially given how untaught and exacting the writing is, and I agree with that critique. But when I kept thinking through, like, what would I cut? Which scenes would I cut? What subplots would I cut? What characters would I cut? I found that, like, the funny, ancillary, discursive bits were often the best. There's a moment where... In exchange for his sister's silence about his dalliance with a girl in his class, he escorts her to a daytimer, which is sort of a playing hooky from school, South Asian dance a thon during school hours, so that these second generation immigrant kids can participate in a feeling of wild youth that comports with what their immigrant parents expect. And like that scene was so great and specific and and I just loved that moment and it was sort of an extra 11 minutes in the film or whatever that you didn't necessarily relish when the clock kept striking forward. But the the specificity and the particularity of some of the scenes and moments and characters, I I enjoyed a lot. As to the portrayal of Bruce, I think again, in that kind of attention and patience with detail, there were some subtleties. I don't think he was painted in the film as a poorly understood messiah figure. I think what the main character Javed is responding to is the writing, the the kind of use of writing in lyric to evoke a mood or a frustration that could be universal. And I feel like he's, it's a response to writing, to lyrics. There's also, I think quite pointedly, a scene where Javed watches a documentary about Bruce Springsteen in which he expresses that he's thinking about some of the travails of his sister and her husband uh, as they suffer economic hardships. So I think it's, you know, it, it's less about... How did this guy make himself into a star and stardom is what you want and art gives you stardom? Then here's someone who cares about this type of story, understands that these experiences are painful and worth singing about, worth paying attention to, worth writing about. That felt to me like a smart and interesting thing to articulate about Springsteen's career and, and not a totally broad brush. One. And I guess the second thing is the thing I said in, in route to setting this up, which is just the attention to this particular moment in British history and the specificity of this world, of the relationship to this factory plant, of his mother's sewing, of the dynamic within the family, of the mm-hmm. dynamic within the siblings, of the dynamic within the community. There was just kind of a patience and attention to it that made me feel i had spent an interesting couple hours staring at a screen like i did not regret the time i spent on this movie even though i didn't love this movie
1: i'm going to get back to you in one sec but quickly i think you put your finger on what was absolutely the best scene in the entire movie which is that he discovers this whole other side to his sister he's not the only one hiding a semi-assimilated you know self that yearns to be something other than what his you know parents hope for him and the daytimer scene is just magnificent, but it also pointed the way to what wisdom the film had, Isaac. I think because in the middle of this, they're dancing to to what sounds to my ears to be. Uh, some kind of uh, South Asian club music. And in the midst of it, he puts his um, Walkman uh, headphones on and begins to play Springsteen. And this is the only thing that will make him feel comfortable there. And at that moment, the movie, Isaac seemed to be to be achieving self-awareness about what this music was. Because it's not only a means of midwifing his, his own future self, who's going to be a writer, as we sort of know going in. It's also a shield and a way of not even being present to peers of his who have the same misgivings and longings. And in, in the I don't want to give anything away, but in the sort of climax of the movie, a speech is given by him that indicates r- rather equivocal feelings about the role this music has played in his life.
0: Yeah, and can I, can I honestly say, I cried during that speech. Uh, as did every all seven other people in the movie theater that I was in, just started crying in the middle of it. And it's the very kind of film cliche moment where a character has prepared remarks and then they set them down halfway through and then tell the screenwriter's point of view into the microphone. And so, you know, at first I was just like, oh, I can't believe that's what we're doing here. But then that actual speech I found deeply moving because I think one thing... That those of us who were teenage culture obsessives of one kind or another, you know, as we grow older, we get a more equivocal, you know, view on that. Um, There's a great essay collection by Jonathan Lethem called The Disappointment Artist that is very much about that, about coming to question the role that culture has had in our coming of age, even as it was so vital to that coming of age. And I was quite moved by that moment. I do think that is the best thing in the movie is the mm-hmm. complexity with which it treats it. And the reason or how it's able to get there is by how much um, affection and sympathy it actually has for almost everyone and their point of view in the movie. The parents aren't just this caricature of overbearing, conservative immigrant parents or something like that, right? They have a real point of view that is viewed with affection and taken as legitimate within the film. The other thing that I do think that it hits well, uh, because I've just said that I, I mostly disliked this movie, but the actual first scene when he listens to Bruce Springsteen, you know, there's like a storm going on and he puts his headphones on and he plays this and then suddenly the lyrics start appearing on the screen. That really did feel a bit to me like what it was like to discover a band that I realized at the moment I heard that first song, I was going to be obsessed with them for a few years when I was a teenager. You know, when I was like in seventh grade or whatever. <laughs> I, I, you know, put something on and just be like, oh my God, this is my life. This now I have to me, run yeah. out of the house and grab all the poems I threw into the storm, you know? Um, uh, and so like that moment I was really taken with and that speech at the end I was really taken with. There's just a lot of stuff in between those moments where I I felt like it just was undercooked.
1: Guys, it sounds to me like we're taking the puppy home from the kennel. <laughs> it's little puppy eyes looked at us through the bars in the cage. We we all cried. I cried. I cried at the end of that movie. All right, before we go, uh, I just have to mention, did anyone else choke up just a tiny bit when he flies to the United States and the uh, passport control guy just looks at him <laughs> and says... That's just a great reason to come to America, to go to the home of the boss. And you were like, my country fucking rocks. I mean, the, the <laughs> love that this country feels for America at our best, like the best side of America, I kind of, I got to say, it, like, I really fell hard for that. It's in every ad for the movie. So I,
0: I was well inoculated against that moment, I will say.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> puppy murderer, puppy killer. I know. Never come back on the show. Okay, the movie is uh, Blinded by the Light. Check it out. We had mixed feelings. Let's uh, let's hear what yours are. Before we go any further, now is the moment in our program we talk uh, some business. Isaac, what do you got?
0: In Slate Plus today, Stephen, Julia, and I will be discussing ice cream. Would you believe the three of us have a lot of hangups about it? Well, we do. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gabfest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate podcasts and a ton of other wonderful benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today.
1: Okay, let's go on. Sean Dudley, aptly named Dud, is a young adrift surfer dude in mourning for his recently deceased and beloved father. And so desperate for some structure and purpose, he's drawn mysteriously to a local lodge. Uh, kind of an Elks, Shriners, Masons sort of deal. I feel like This Place Can Help Me is about uh, the best he can do to articulate his instinct to join the Order of the Lynx. This show is very strange, very enchanting. Uh, it's the Big Lebowski by way of the crying of Lot 49. And it has us continually wondering, uh, is the world filled with signs and wonders, or is it just a hopeless, enemy-filled mess? Let's uh, Let's listen to a clip.
0: And so that I may someday see that which is hidden, I submit myself, as squire, to the order. Or and I... Uh, I... um, Sorry. Sorry. I, hold on. And I vow, I vow. And I vow to abide in silence and mystery, and, and, and I vow to abide in silence and mystery and accept the exile our knowledge requires.
1: Your oath is sealed. And what the hell? Uh, we got a busted pipe somewhere. I saw another leak in the men's room. <laughs> Don't look at me. This is your area of
0: expertise. I'm not a plumber. I'm a salesman. Whatever, you know, we shouldn't be doing this anyway. It's not official without the Sovereign Protector.
1: You heard the message. I'm in charge until Larry gets back.
0: Gentlemen, please.
1: Your oath is sealed and your path is waiting. Arise. Isaac, was this a show that you were familiar with already? uh, Or or did you watch it uh, as homework for our show?
0: No, I had already seen the whole first season because like Whoa. six months ago, Dude. maybe Laura Miller was like, you have to watch Lodge 49. You're going to love it. And Laura, of course, wrote a very great piece about uh, the show that is, is on a website called Slate.com. So uh, Anne and I sat down and we just burned through the whole thing as fast as people with a four year old who has trouble going to bed can burn through a TV show. I adore this show. Uh, I think it's sort of, you know, mixture of Byzantine plot symbols that may or may not mean anything and kind of low-stakes hangout is uh, it's just a vibe I wanna spend a lot of time with. I love the characters, I love the actors. I think there's something really fascinating going on with its Tone That it's about sort of pretty heavy stuff. It's about depression and having no money and, you know, the best days of your life being behind you and the failure of America's promise in the post-industrial moment. But it deals with it so deftly and with such a light touch that I I just find it really bewitching. I don't know. Mm. I'm super Uh into it. And have you started in on season two? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I did not watch this week's episode, which was the night before we we taped the show. But I I have seen the first uh, two episodes, which uh, definitely sort of keep pushing this uh, (laughs) madcap uh, story of these characters searching for meaning, you know, even further. And also have a lot of Man of La Mancha references
1: in it, which I'm always here for. I love it. Um, Julia, what'd you make of it?
2: I love this show so much. I was so delighted by it. And I went back and started with the first season, and I actually didn't have time to watch all of the episodes that existed. But then I read all of our preparatory materials, and I was crushed that things were spoiled for me that I hadn't gotten to yet. Like, usually, I'm heartless and ruthless and like, eh, old crusty culture hand. I'll watch anything in any order. Narrative can't spoil me. And this just feels so special and unusual and uh, distinctive and profound and enjoyable. You know, usually when you're like, it's a quiet show, no stakes, weird vibe, post-industrial, blah, blah. And when you're like, oh, okay, can't wait to watch that, even if you know, you know, it's quote unquote good. But this is just like very snackable for being so meandering and profound. Like, why? Wow, I don't understand how they get all the pep and enjoyment into the episodes, despite it fundamentally being... You know, a uh, show about depression and death and the post-industrial economy and everything else Isaac mentioned. and then also kind of being like using the contours of a lost style conspiracy show, but being sort of only lazily interested in them. <laughs> like what it's doing structurally is is kind of kind of fascinating, too. but i'm I'm down for this show.
1: Love this show, yeah, it's weirdly, weirdly mesmerizing. It is very written for something that's ambling, shambling and Shaggy Doggy, it's got these literary flourishes. I mean, Lodge 49 is a reference to Lot 49, The Crying of Lot 49, the deathless uh, Pynchon novella. There's an aura of melancholy devastation to it. It is very much about how American society over the last god knows how many decades but more acutely recently is visiting devastation on individual lives i think especially men's lives the sister played by sonia cassidy it's a it's a remarkable performance in a remarkable part and her corner of this world i find believable and beautifully drawn nonetheless i do think that the that the show is principally about the effects of this generalized social devastation on men and men's sense of purpose and this need to find a pattern. It is so much more about the need to find a pattern, to find some remnant of hierarchy and purpose that takes masculinity, that when it just rests inside of you with no sense of social utility becomes a toxin, to find some correlative in the world that brings back masculine purposiveness, back into operation. It's so much more about that than whether or not this alluring possibility that the, the pattern is real and these sort of pathetic Shriner loser types actually are connected to something ancient and powerful like it's so much more about the yearning for pattern than it is the, the the kind of da vinci code juvenile da vinci code preoccupation with whether or not the possibility that these shriners are actually an ancient order of templars that uh you don't it, it's like you don't really it's funnily enough you i can't imagine it being spoiled in a way but i should say i'm three hours into season one and i absolutely refuse to do my homework and watch at least a little bit of season 2 because i want to watch the whole thing consecutively. Uh, Julia, i'm completely 100% with you. I just cannot have anything about this delicious, weird, lazy, sharp smorgasbord snatched out from under me. So i'm i'm only i'm only on episode 3 of season 1, but i'm completely captivated.
0: I think you hit on something there, Steve, which is that, you know, the the way that it's plot works on you the viewer is the way the lodge works on the members mm-hmm. of the lodge and nice, I think yeah. that's kind of the secret for why it's so compelling it's like you sort of know the stakes of the plot which is I should say the plot of the show is pretty Byzantine like it goes a lot of really complicated places but um, the stakes weirdly you sort of know that the payoff is going to be both delightful but also not what it's promising at the same time you know that 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 somehow what you're going to discover is going to be both lower key and Mm -hmm. far weirder than what what a normal show with this plot would give you and that's sort of that like yearning for that that it inspires in you the the viewer i think is really reflected in what the characters are doing
1: right like why do i want this to be true like why do i want this to link up to something deep mythic and ancient like what like, why can't I just enjoy this as a, you know, weird meandering fable in Long Beach, California with no ultimate point?
0: I will also say that I think, you know, one of the other reasons why why it works is just its visual sensibility and its direction. And in particular, its use of psychedelia in the soundtrack is I, I just think it's very compelling. There's just like not a lot of shows where like that's the vibe they want to skate out on, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like. Everything being darkly lit and people whispering into their microphones and, you know, talking about how we're going to overthrow the president of the United States or whatever. Right. It's it's it really is refreshing to see something in a serialized drama that's going in the totally opposite direction.
1: We also, we got to shout out to uh, the character Ernie Fontaine just strikes me as one of the great enduring characters in the making in uh, TV history. You know, he's the, he's, he's black, he's a plumbing salesman. He's just the heart and soul of the lodge as we get to know it. And just a remarkable performance from the actor Brent Jennings.
2: I love your theory that it's about the confusion of masculinity, Steve. I mean, I still have have more to watch to fully evaluate that. But I think that's interesting. And I have to say that your analysis there reminds me of our mutual analysis of Magic Mike, which I think we both read as like a searing portrait of the economic dislocation of the American male in the late aughts. And I'm not sure our reading has become the, you know, the enduring iconic reading of that film, but I stand by it and believe it is correct. Um, And perhaps this show can be in the Magic Mike camp of uh, Thoughtful Studies of American Masculinity. But I'm also curious, I mean, I would say my one reservation about it is just, it's gotten my hopes up. So Isaac, you know, does it deliver? Does it wobble? Is it a sure arrow true and direct to the center of the target throughout? Is it meanderingly taking a moment to find its tone? How how does it pull off uh, what it's delivered so far?
0: Oh, I mean, I think it is, uh, sorry, I'm just laughing, thinking about some of the stuff y'all have coming as you keep watching. I, I think that at least in terms of its first season and the first two episodes of the second season, it is absolutely sure of itself and clear about what it is doing, right? But what it is doing is not the same thing that a normal serialized drama is doing in that, you know, it has this compelling, I think as you put it, snackable ongoing plot. Many of the episodes actually, is particularly in the second half, end with cliffhangers in the way that like a serialized TV show should. But then when you discover what's going on, it's not necessarily what anyone thought was really going on, but is also um, really delightful and you're just like really happy to have the story go in this sort of weird new direction. It, it You know, the other two... I think big influences on the show are the works of the Coen brothers, particularly the big Lebowski and the Charles Portis novel masters of Atlantis, which is also about a lodge um, and weird conspiracies therein. And so it does have that sort of Coen brothers feeling of like, you're constantly opening a new door to something even stranger and odder. And then just when you think you've seen all there is in that room, like, Oh, there's another door. And you go through that door, you know, like the story kind of works that way. And so the payoffs are never what you expect And that, to me, is what what makes them quite delightful and then in the second season there's actually a, a a big ramp up like the second season starts with a scene of utter insanity that I won't spoil and then has one of those six months earlier title cards and like that's what the second season is going to be about is how did these people wind up in this utterly mm. bonkers situation but it still has all those you know wonderful details like the um the audio books of the Robert Ludlum esque spy novels read by Paul Giamatti that every character is listening to on their car stereo <laughs> or um, the place where all the characters gather called Donuts. It's just called Donuts and that's where everyone eats breakfast or the horrible pawnbroker who somehow manipulates everyone into being an increasing debt to him. You know, all those grace notes are still there. So I, I think you're going to like where it's going. Mm-hmm. All right. That
2: is exciting. And your litany of references remind me of one more, which is the show Terriers, which we talked about on our show many years ago. Which I, I love think that similarly was Right, and took... It was set in Southern California and not in one of the more glamorous provinces and took, you know, kind of a a hoary show template, in that case, the detective show, in this case, the conspiracy show, and then sort of lazed about it and used it to do something totally different. I don't think that show was as exciting to me as this one. I was like, yeah, sure, that seems like a solid time. This one felt like bracing you know, the thing that I have expressed about all kinds of totally plausible, solid, good shows in the last year, I did not feel with this. That feeling of like, wow, they made another one. Probably should watch it. Oh gosh, Pen 15 seems worth somebody's time. Oh, don't make me. And that's when I'm like, <laughs> more, more, more. Gimme, gimme, gimme.
1: All right. Well, it's Lodge 49. Check it out. Tell us what you thought of it. Moving on.
0: Will you be there for me, Stephen?
1: Jesus. Isaac, keep going, man. This is better than anything I have to introduce (laughs) this. Let's hear it. All right, Isaac, who, who did the theme song to Friends? The Rembrandts. Oh my god! You are you a completist? Okay, so let me tell you, my friends.
0: Thing is that I will say I don't think on any objective level, Friends is a good show. I have seen <laughs> apparently every... no one does given our prep materials. I have seen every episode of Friends, some of them multiple times. It is inextrably linked, though, to being in my twenties and the end of college and moving to New York City and the relationship I was in then. And, you know, it is so tied into sure. that time in my life that I remember the show extremely well, but I also have actually kind of, like, never revisited it since because it just is of that moment. You know, like, my my distinctive friend's memory is going to visit my then-girlfriend's parents in Kuala Lumpur and, you know, you get across the international dateline, and it was winter in the States, and it's, of course, you know, tropical over there, and it's humid, and you can't, you know, you just can't think because it's 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 a new, you know, the time difference is so big. And so in the 48 hours it would take to recover from that, we would watch bootleg DVDs of Friends on her dad's TV. You know, so it's like, it's always like, it's, it's connected to those kinds of memories for me. And so I remember the show, I remember many specific moments of it very, very well, but it's always tied into me to, like, Who I was when I was watching was a very different person. It was 25 years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think there are so many things, Julia, that we can kind of toy with in a segment like this. One, obviously, is each of our individual associations with the show, but also it's a period. I mean, it is really, it captures a period in American life no less than All in the Family does a certain, you know, tone and aura of the 1970s, you know, via Archie Bunker. It's these friends, six friends in improbably huge, you know, uh, apartments in New York City that as everyone always points out obligatorily when they talk about or write about the show, they could never have afforded on their salaries. It's this extremely panacea uh, ideal of New York City in the 90s, but contemporary to the 90s. I mean, there was, um, certainly compared to what's come since, there was a feeling of a certain, you know, I don't know, innocence and, um, and a rediscovery of New York City as a kind of playground for the at least white uh, rich people. But also, you know, it's a, this has got to be a segment on some level about the end of broadcasting. I mean, it, the numbers are incredible. 20 million viewers had as many as 25 million uh, into its eighth season. Its final episode, I think, got close to 53 million viewers. I mean, numbers that I don't think we could ever see repeated again. Is that a testimony to the greatness of the show or something sort of generic and broad about it or both?
2: I mean, the thing that's so interesting to me about this, and you know, so our occasion for talking about friends—it's the 25th anniversary of it this year. Uh, it, it came on to Netflix four years ago in the great streaming wars that are commencing this fall. Uh, Warner Media has wrested the rights back from Netflix, and it will go off of Netflix in, I believe, 2020. The companies that own the show are tired of propping up Netflix's ability to drive its own subscriptions with Friends, and are taking it back as they launch their own streaming service. And the reason that matters is that Friends is a hit. It is a huge current hit in 2019. You know, based on everything we know about its cultural relevance, about who's watching it, about you know it, its various distribution platforms right now. As many people watch it as watch, you know, episodes of new shows that are considered relative successes, just because the total numbers that watch any given show have diminished so much uh, as we've moved away from broadcast. And the thing that I find poignant and fascinating about that is that there still is a big audience for the kind of bland, quote unquote, universality that Friends represented, right? There's this idea of like it's just people hanging out. Does it matter that they have no friends of color, that Chandler is deeply uncomfortable with homosexuality in a way that sucks, uh, that the economics of it are unrealistic. It's just people hanging out, making jokes, being kind of enjoyable uh, and you know, eventually coupling off in various si dos that are more and less plausible. And you know, people wouldn't make this kind of show now. However, it seems like there is an audience for this kind of show yeah. now, um, but if you were to just make a show like this and put it out now on network television, it probably wouldn't find an audience because that's not where people go to discover shows en masse, and if you were to put it on a streamer, it's unclear that it would become as addictively snackable because... That sense of centrality and discovery and kind of the megaphone that you could put on a primetime release in the 90s is harder to do now. So it's not unclear to me that people shouldn't just be trying to make huge broadcast hits still. Those shows still do numbers and everyone's trying to make, you know, a prestige 10 episode lodge 49 type of thing, which however much we laud it, there's just no world ever where a show like that has the kind of economic juggernaut success Mm -hmm. of friends and it's sort of funny that people aren't trying harder to make new friends
1: i more or less agree with everything you say but i don't think you could make a new friends i think people want to eternal sunshine their minds back to not only before trump but before um the 08 financial crisis they they literally just want to be transported back into into the past before these experiences uh, happened to us collectively and i think any new show now is has got to reflect back at some level the trauma the collective trauma that the culture has gone through or else it's just not going to find any any traction i mean my feeling about friends was always you know there was the, the people commented at the time so it was preceded by seinfeld seinfeld appeared several years became popular a few years or several years before friends was generated and seinfeld always felt as though It was funny, the thing about Seinfeld that I always found just fascinating was was how clearly it originated in the actual experiences of comedians and comedian-adjacent people living on the actual Upper West Side of an actual Manhattan. There was Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld had lived something that went into, you know, the germ that flowered as this ridiculous had come about nothing. So underneath its nothingness, you could tell was a specific biographical experience of people who had stayed in new york during the period when people fled it that was another aspect to it too it had shared some dna with with the woody allen of annie hall like the people who wanted to go who were ready to go down with the ship of manhattan if they had to because there was just nowhere else in the world to go but at the same time it had been expunged somewhat somewhat considerably actually of its jewishness right so Larry David, who's Jewish, becomes George Costanza, who's, I suppose, Italian. He becomes ethnic. And so Friends always struck me as Seinfeld, but radically less Jewish. Like, like it was, you know, it, it was just... <laughs> it, And it took place... Except for Ross. Right? But I mean... I mean, the show was completely contemporary with the advent of Giuliani's New York, you know, in which the city was turned into basically a, you know, suburb of the Walt Disney Corporation. And so to me, you know, to someone like me in my generation, like it was just going to come off as just incredibly inauthentic. That said, it's a for, for what it is a delivery system of. It was so flawlessly, sleekly designed. I mean, and you couldn't help admire it. I mean, it was just... You know, there were lines from the show I still remember to this day. I mean, it's, you know, I I could lose myself in an episode of Friends now. And, and Isaac, I'll just conclude very quickly by saying as a, you know, as a parent, you think, oh, the virus of the Beatles just lives in the atmosphere <laughs> and it's going to get into my kids somewhere between the ages of zero and eight. And they'll be obsessed with the Beatles. And I, we turned out to be fricking wrong about this. It was the virus in the air that got into them was Friends. All of them watch it. It is like, you know, Talmudic to them. I mean, they've memorized virtually the whole thing. It's just incredible to see.
0: I mean, that's really wild because, yeah, I mean, uh, last year when I was teaching at the new school, my students all watched Friends, which I thought was totally bizarre because they weren't alive when the show started, but were super into it. I mean, I think there's a few things going on, there is that kind of return to this, you know, Giuliani-ish, you know, the Giuliani version of innocence, of a more innocent time, which we should say, when Friends was on, it was critiqued for that. This isn't like a critique that we've come up with today. Its whiteness was criticized then, its vision of New York was criticized then, you know, our culture was wrestling with it back then, along these similar lines. But as it's had this long afterlife on Netflix, where you can just sort of call it up and put it in the background, you know, there's something comforting, I think, to a lot of of people about it. I will also say, because I don't think they get enough credit, the six actors that they assembled for this show worked as an amazing ensemble together. All six of them, in any configuration of two, or uh, actually any configuration of any number of them, had great comic chemistry together. They all give, like, very clear performances of their types. Um, People like to pick on Chandler and Matthew Perry, and it's understandable because the character is loathsome. But if you think about it for a second, it is not easy to just emphasize a to-be verb and have that be funny. Like, that's not... (laughs) <laughs> punchline. Do you know what I mean? Could I be talking more about this show? Like, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, Jennifer Aniston, as Willa talks about in her great piece about it, uh, playing the kind of uh, 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 Jap stereotype who slowly becomes worldly is really good. Like, all six of them actually are, are really give finely tuned performances on that show, which I think is actually, like part of what's really fun about it you know i think the other thing that has happened to television since then beyond the you know the niche stuff and the the explosion of the market and streaming is serialization and one of the things about friends that stands out when you watch it now is that if they made that show today at some point the characters would realize that they're terrible friends to one another That in a show with six characters where you have to have conflict, the conflict's going to happen between the six of them, right? And that they have routinely, over the course of these seasons, been horrible people to one another. And if you look at a show like Community, which also has six protagonists, there's a point in its third season where the show kind of wakes up to the fact that the characters have all been bad to each other. And the show can never recover from it it spends the next three years trying to figure out how to solve that problem and it can't, right? So part of what makes friends work is that very thing that people mock it for, which is the weekly reset button. That there are things that kind of continue serialized Ross's crush on Rachel being an obvious example, but that, you know, that they're, that every week they wake up and they've forgotten mm-hmm. what shitty people they were the last week right. to one another so right. they can do it all over again is part of what's comforting, I think, about it is that way that a TV show is constructed. right. And, and, and at least in a big network, trying to sell a prestige show or whatever, they're not going to do that
1: anymore well, also it plugs in Julia to the business model, which is that the way to make a huge amount of money on t v shows used to be the syndication rights and you know it get sold to a bunch of local stations and then it would play in perpetuity and it generated huge amounts of money upfront you know and uh in residual checks for all the people involved in it on and on forever. You make a Netflix show, guess what Netflix owns it forever i mean you there is no syndication it doesn't get resold. As I understand it. And so, you know, and the thing about syndication is you pop on 11pm, you pop on local channel five, and there's a friends and you watch it, you don't have to watch the one before you're not obliged to watch the one after it, that they were all standalones. And the, you know, the heyday of the, you know, memory reset button seems to be uh, behind us.
2: No, I mean, I think you're totally right. And and the question of what the back end of a show or the the kind of after the initial run economics of a show are going to be for all of the people involved in it is going to be a huge issue this fall as the streaming wars heat up and in various contract negotiations around Hollywood next year. Like this question of who owns what and what is the model. And if you hit it big with the TV show, what does that look like for you 10 years, 20 years down the road is Wide open and very powerful people in Los Angeles have very different views about how it should go. And it's going to be really interesting to follow that fight.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's not going to be solved by friends, so to speak. Okay, I know we have one each in our hip pockets. So let's go around very quickly. Your favorite line from friends, Julie Turner, go.
2: Oh, I totally don't have one. I was struck. Fail. Um, okay, Isaac. <laughs> no. I want, to, I want to hear Julia's answer.
1: <laughs> okay, sorry, Julia, go
2: ahead. <laughs> that is a pop quiz that I will fail. I was never big. I am not I did not fall down the Friends rabbit hole. I watched it. My family was obsessed with Seinfeld growing up as like Catholic wasps in New England for you know, we all huddled around and watched Seinfeld and obsessively every Thursday when I was in high school, but we didn't watch Friends. And okay. I've, you know, seen a bunch of it over the years, but I don't have a deep personal relationship with it. I will just say that I adore Phoebe. And, you know, And if, of all of these performers, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Isaac, that just the level of acting and comedic talent assembled here. I mean, if you think about the afterlife of these folks, of what Matt LeBlanc did on episodes, which was just an incredible performance. If you think about Lisa Kudrow and her various follow-ups, the performances here are extraordinary. But I just... I love Daffy, Daffy Phoebe. I mean, it's so easy Mm. to make essentially a Ditz be a real stock type. And she is such a specific. Fully realized, like, new age dits. Like, there's this monologue she gives in the pilot, which I rewatched in preparation for this, comparing her tough arrival in New York to Rachel's attempt to snip her daddy's credit cards after she walks out on her wedding, when she (laughs) describes her mother committing suicide and then getting taken in by, like, an albino vendor near the Port Authority who then also commit suicide it's just so dark and specific and weird and bleak and amazing so everything Phoebe ever said is my favorite line i
1: mean you just gave us your favorite i mean come on all right uh that was
0: well done isaac what do you got I have, and I think I think this is the supreme one because it is always relevant, is Ross shouting pivot as they try to move the couch up the stairs. Uh, <laughs> it's immortal for two reasons. If you live in New York City, you will always try to move a piece of furniture up a stairwell that is too narrow to move that piece of furniture up to. But also, thanks to, you know, publications pivoting to video or there was the period of time during the Trump campaign where they were pivoting to a new message every couple of days or, you know, we're pivoting to infrastructure week or whatever. There will always be, you know, every week there will be something in the news that will make you want to go pivot, pivot (laughs) over and over and over again. So I think the immortal thing to me is pivot.
1: Okay. All right. So mine is from Daffy Phoebe. And she's trying to buck up Chandler, who's having trouble finding a woman. And she says, you see these amazing, beautiful women all the time with nothing guys. And then there's a pause. And she says, you could be one of those nothing guys. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. All right. Friends, I'm sure you all have opinions about it. Send them to us at our email address uh, or hit us up on Twitter. All right. Moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast uh, where we endorse Isaac. What do you have?
0: I have a game. I have a game, a new one, that is available for your iOS device or uh, PC or Macintosh from a director named Sam Barlow and a game studio called Furious B. Um, But I actually think calling it a game is a little misleading. It is called Telling Lies. You can get it from the App Store. But what it really is, is a fragmented cinematic narrative that you use a kind of game mechanic to experience. Because it's kind of experimental in nature, it's difficult exactly to explain how it works, but like the reason why I hesitate to call it a game is that there isn't a real goal for you, the player, other than finding out what the story is. It has four protagonists, an FBI agent played by Logan Marshall Green, uh, his wife, a young record store clerk, and a cam girl who intersect in increasingly surprising ways. And how you learn that story is... There's a database of video clips. There's over 160 of them. I've by no means seen them all. And you can search this database by keyword, right? So you can search by one of the characters' names. But it will only show you the five chronologically earliest clips that match that keyword. And so you just, by using these words... And as you watch each video clip, you'll figure out new words you want to search. You gradually make your way through all of these conversations and scenes until eventually this quite complicated and surprising narrative emerges that I will say absolutely nothing about. Um, One of the other fascinating things it does is often the scenes you are watching is like one half of a FaceTime conversation. You know, someone is talking into their phone or computer and you only get their half of it and you see their reactions to what's being said you don't hear the other speaker and then you have to kind of figure out based on the things they said how you can find the other half of the conversation in your database there's one part where there was like one character that hadn't shown up for a while and then i magically found him through you know entering the right word and i was like oh my god that's who it is it's reed diamond from homicide life on the street and so uh, Is uh,
2: is this like a story that rewards you for good googling skills
0: Uh, In a way, yes. And so that shouldn't be entertaining or addictive, but it's incredibly entertaining and addictive. Part of it is just the kind of voyeuristic thrill of watching these fictional characters, you know, private conversations. And also there's just the way that it makes you feel a little bit like you yourself are an investigator, you know, and then you get paid off with uh, the payoff is just a story, but it's an interesting story with really uh, good performances from the from the core cast of about five or six people.
2: I have to say that sounded nightmarish until I realized that it would reward you for good googling skills. It does reward it you for good googling. Like go- it, yeah, it, it, it's kind what of like a- platform are you on? Like, are you? Is this like an app? Like, what? Yeah, how, what I'm, is I'm, this?
0: I'm playing it on my phone. You can play it on your phone. You can play it on your uh, your device. You can play it on your computer. And you, so you can you know type in things to watch these these various uh, these various short clips. It's kind of akin to. A little bit, I think, what Steven Soderbergh was trying to do with Mosaic. But it pushes the idea much, much further and I think is more successful on that front. Uh, Yeah. So once again, that is Telling Lies from uh, Sam Barlow is the name of the director. And it's made by a studio called Furious B and distributed by Annapurna. Very cool. Um, Julia, what do you have?
2: I am like so intrigued and suspicious of that experience. (laughs) I'm both attracted and repelled.
0: That's the the emotional tension that carries you through the experience of playing it is that attraction okay. slash
2: repulsion. Okay, we'll see. Today I have two endorsements for people visiting Los Angeles with children. The first is Metropolis 2, which is a work of art by Chris Burden at LACMA. Much of the things at LACMA are not on display as LACMA undergoes, this is the LA County Museum of Art, a very controversial renovation plan and is destroying an old museum and building a new museum that many people debate the qualities of. But in one of the buildings that is still standing, there is a thing called Metropolis Two, which is essentially like a gigantic set for toy cars. It's like a gigantic city built out of Legos and tracks and blocks and foam, and it's just kind of gorgeous. and And I think every couple of hours, they put a gajillion cars into it. They get lifted by pulleys to the top of the system. I mean, it's like a It's the size of a whole room. It's probably the size of what Monica Geller's apartment on Friends should have been. And then all of these cars rattle and ricochet around this incredible, beautiful contraption. And, you know, I took my kids to this thing. you know, having heard about it, knowing it would be fun, thinking it would be fascinating, good for them, fun for me, you know whatever. And it was in fact all of those things and my children were completely entranced and they wandered around and looked at it from all angles and you can go up high on a viewing platform and down low and get close but it actually is kind of a profound work of art about urban living I think too and really interesting to view in the particular city that is Los Angeles because it is entrancing, exciting, energy inspiring, but also very very loud. There is this kind of cacophonous racket as everything zips and rattles around, and you sort of go through these phases, first of entrancement and wonder, then of kind of overstimulation and exhaustion, and then sort of back into like a flow state with the beauty of um, the omnidirectional zipping of city life. And it's just gorgeous. It's a really gorgeous piece. And if you are in Los Angeles and in that area, I think it's worth checking out, even though LACMA is in a somewhat diminished state at the moment. The second thing I would endorse is going to the La Brea Tar Pits, You know, the tar pits are this extraordinary—I mean, they are what they sound like. It's literally like a pit of black goo with methane bubbles bubbling in it. And there's a museum there where you can learn all about what this area of Los Angeles was like during the Ice Age— which was full of mammoths and direwolves and things that died in pits of black goo. And among the attractions is this statue that's in the tar pit of a mama mammoth and a baby mammoth uh, in a pleasant maternal scene, if you're looking at it through kid eyes, and a horrifying scene if you're looking at it through adult eyes and contemplating that these mammoths are getting stuck in the goo in a manner that will cause them to fall into the goo, die, have their bones wither away, and then be discovered later by scientists and put into the museum. So the tar pits are also getting renovated, they might move the mammoth. They've got three plans for renovation. And among those plans are proposals to move the mama mammoth indoors. There is a great article on the Los Angeles Times by Carlina Miranda about the three plans. I believe not all of them will take the mammoth away from the pit, but um, we shall see which one they choose. Visit it while you can.
1: I love it. All right. Well, I think uh, I initially got one of the first waves of... uh, unalloyed shit on the show when I um and also also laid down my marker back when I endorsed a tiny obscure pizza parlor in a distant corner of Vermont that's only open two and a half hours per week and having returned to it this past weekend I'd now like to reendorse it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice, double down. <laughs>
1: uh, it's called Pizza on Earth, and it's uh, it's just so worth a pilgrimage. Don't do the Camino. Don't go see the relics of St. James and Santiago de Compostela. Everyone's doing that these days. Instead, flow uninterruptedly in body and spirit to uh, Charlotte, Vermont, or maybe it's North Ferrisburg. I can't remember anyway. Google Pizza on Earth, Vermont, and you will find it. You sit on a hillside on a farm, and they make a glorious like burnt bottom pizza to rival anything you've ever eaten out of the ingredients of the farm. The reason it's only open for like an hour and a half or two and a half hours on a Friday night is that these people principally are running a farm, not a pizza parlor, but it is rustic heaven. And surely some of you drive from someplace in the Northeast to Montreal and pass through exactly this part of the world to pull over there. Just go on a Friday evening between, I think it's something like five and something like seven thirty at night and get this pizza. Trust me. But Also, I'd like to thank the listener who emailed in and told us about a very short piece of writing by E.M. Forster called My Wood, and I'd just like to read one of the wonderful little bits of it, it's a tiny piece of writing, densely packed with wisdom, and the occasion of it being the purchase of a tiny piece of property, the first that he'd ever owned, which got him thinking and writing. And he says, creation, property, enjoyment form a sinister trinity in the human mind. Creation and enjoyment are both very, very good, yet they are often unattainable without a material basis. And at such moments, property pushes itself in as a substitute saying, accept me instead, I'm good enough for all there. It is not enough. It is, as Shakespeare said, of lust, the expensive spirit in a waste of shame. It is, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. Yet we don't know how to shun it. It is forced on us by our economic system as the alternative to starvation. It is also forced on us by an internal defect in the soul, by the feeling that in property may lie the germs of self-development and of exquisite or heroic deeds." Our life on earth is and ought to be material and carnal, but we have not yet learned to manage our materialism and carnality properly. They are still entangled with the desire for ownership, where, in the words of Dante, possession is one with loss. I love this little piece of writing, and it was a very dear thing for a listener to bring it to our attention.
2: Anyway, all right. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Steve.
1: Thanks, Isaac. Always a pleasure to be here. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com. We love getting emails. We've gotten wonderful ones in the past few weeks. Or interact with us on Twitter. We like that, too. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Our production assistant is Cleo Levin. For Isaac Butler and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Mecca. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon.
2: Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. We have a very, very excellent walkable local ice cream place in my neighborhood that has like very good ice cream. And it's one of those mint chips that's not the canonical childhood green dye creme de menthe mint. It's like, holy shit, there's mint leaves in this thing type mint. Or not actual mint leaves, but the taste of mint leaves. But instead of having chocolate sprinkles. They have cocoa nibs. Ugh, gross. And then they have these rainbow sprinkles that are like tendril thin. Like I don't even know where they found these sprinkles. They're like artisanal bullshit sprinkles. And so my ice cream eating out here is just shit out of luck. And I'm basically (laughs) not eating ice cream anymore. So that is the occasion for my aggrieved question. Thank you for explaining your theories of the case.